0: I'm Jonathan Bastion. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, what does it mean to be a man in the modern day? Over the past 50 years, our concept of manliness has been steadily changing. Men for many years held fast to the idea of
1: masculinity as strong, stoic, never shows feelings. That model had remained unchanged. But what men were actually doing was actually far more childcare, far more emotionally rich relationships with their partners.
0: And then, the story of one man's struggle with gender stereotypes.
2: I've kind of always noted that, that masculinity was going to be a problem. When I got to high school, you know, I was constantly teased for how feminine I was. My family would make comments. My peers would make comments in church. And then it just, it just it, it's always been something that has followed me, even down to my voice now. You know, the, the whole, oh, ma'am or sir, I, I don't really know what to call you.
0: Masculinity and our changing perceptions of manhood, all ahead on Life Examined. In the growing world of gender and women's studies, Michael Kimmel occupies an unusual perch. To put it simply, he studies men and how our notions of manhood have been shifting. His most recent book is called Angry White Men, American Masculinity at the End of an Era. Long gone, he argues, are the days of men being emotionless soldiers whose job was to provide and protect— these days, what's asked of men is a new set of skills. Things like listening, communication, empathy, and those men who embrace this new era might find themselves happier than the resistors. Michael Kimmel is Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies and the former director of the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities at Stony Brook University in New York. He joins me now. Welcome.
1: Nice to be with you, Jonathan.
0: Um, Well, well, Michael, let's jump into your expertise here. Uh, To get kind of a broad stroke view of of masculinity here, uh, how do you think it's been transformed over the last 50 years or so? What have you seen as like the the major points of change in terms of how we understand uh, manhood or masculinity?
1: Well, it's a pretty broad question about uh, how masculinity has changed. And the first thing I would say is one of the things that we have learned in the past 50 years is it's hard to speak about masculinity in the singular. Um, there are so many different masculinities. Um, if I were to ask you, Jonathan, to think of uh, two, two American men, one is uh, 75, black, gay, and lives in Chicago. And the other is 19, white, heterosexual, and lives on a farm 250 miles outside of Chicago. Now, don't you think they would have some different ideas about what it meant to be a man? And don't you think they'd have some things in common? So, so the question for us as researchers is to ask the question, when, when, we, when we pose the question, what's happening with men? The first answer is, which men are we talking about? Um, uh, are we talking about men of color, white men, older men, younger men, um, uh, gay men, straight men, tra- trans men? I mean, the the idea of masculinity itself has become so uh, it, so disaggregated. I guess is the right word. There's so many multiple masculinities now. Having said that, and here's the 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 next part of my question, I suppose um, is, uh, they are not all considered equal. Masculinities are also arrayed on a hierarchy by race, by class, by sexuality, etc. And you can, you can add your own dimensions to this. So we speak of masculinities, but we don't want to make a, uh, a kind of idea that they're all, you know, that they're all equally valued. Having said all that, okay, having said all that, now I will not contradict myself, but I will at least now offer an answer to your question. Um, here's the, here is what we have seen in surveys about American men when well sampled for race, class uh, age, uh, ethnicity, etc. This is a sample of, of American men, and what we found over the past 50 years is what we were witnessing was an increasing gap. Between what men said it meant to be a man, and what men were actually doing, that is, men for many years. This is the this is the the the, the old story. Men for many years held fast to the idea of masculinity as strong, stoic, never shows feelings, always you know, always competitive, um, and that notion was, in fact, a growing gap between that ideology, which had remained unchanged from, let's say, John Wayne to Vin Diesel, you know, via Arnold Schwarzenegger, I suppose. Um, That model had remained unchanged. But what men were actually doing was actually far more child care, far more emotionally rich relationships with their partners, far more uh, expressive friendships, far more... uh, now, nah, a little bit more housework, but a lot more childcare. care. So, so, the, the, so what psychologists began to see was a gap between what men were doing and what they said it meant to be a man. What was interesting is in the past five or six years, um, they've begun to see the ideology begin to change. And here is the summary of the, the answer to, my que- to your question. The ideology is beginning to change. Now, it's not to say that Ryan Gosling has replaced Vin Vin Diesel, but the ideology has become more situational oh sure i'm emotional when i'm with my with my partner or, you know and and i i certainly can feel a lot of different things and i can certainly um you know and and i love my children and i weep with pleasure watching them um and you know what and and like what father doesn't <laughs> you know uh, so what we're doing is 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 changing the ideology not completely but just situationally, so that we allow ourselves a lot more um, emotional, uh, uh, emotional depth in our friendships, in our relationships with, with our partners, with our children.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting, interesting point right there. And, and I guess I want to ask also a very, uh, very general question, because I think it's one that's debated so much right now. We hear of notions of gender fluidity and there, there seems to be this breakdown uh, that uh, there is no longer this notion of an archetypal man or a woman. But, but I wonder from what you've studied in terms of, it could be psychology or genetics or any of that, do you feel that there really are core differences between men and women? I
1: would say that there, is, there are very, very few, if any, categorical differences. Now, biology would say that there have to be pretty much categorical differences in it, um, that are the result of, say, testosterone or different chromosomes, or, but but there's virtually no categorical differences. What we're always talking about is a distribution, um, and it is true if you look at a distribution, you know those those bell curve sorts of things, that if you look at one of them, the mean, there are some differences in the distributions. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are um that they're biologically based. That means that some cultures uh emphasize some things for men and some for women, and others uh and other cultures emphasize other things. So are there differences? Of course there are. Um are, do they do they uh do they emanate sort of essentially from our bodies? Unlikely. Um, our identities are a combination of what we inherit biologically and how we interpret that in the world, in the world of our interactions. So we learn, we may be male or female or other, but we are also learn masculinity or femininity. We learn those through our interactions. And what I've written about in my, in much of my work is how guys learn that.
0: Right. And and I think the reason that I bring this up is because there is this story um, that's right, that men are more physical or they're bigger risk takers or they want to use their bodies. They don't want to sit still as much. And yet the modern man is evolving to become something very other than that. And it's creating that tension. So is that too simplistic of a story that I'm I'm telling myself here? Well, I think what you've just what you're confusing or conflating is the the cultural norms
1: that have existed for millennia, men more physical, more active, you know, boys more rambunctious, more you know, roll around on the floor and playful, aggressive play and all of that, and girls more shy and and uh, you know and softer and quieter, and all of those things are. So if you if you say that those are um, are true, then what you're 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 doing? Some you're you're kind of doing a sleight of hand. It may be that that's what we have inherited, but what we are watching today is that some of those very stereotypes are breaking down right in front of our eyes. Um, on the one hand, it is true that women and men may have different styles. But if you put people, and I'll give you a little experiment with this, um, if you put people in the same position, they will act relatively similarly despite their gender difference. Here's a great example. I used to do this with with my students all the time around this very question. I would ask my students, Um, is there, are there really biological differences? How many of you believe that there are real biological differences between women and men and what are they? And of course I would get the stereotyped answers, men more aggressive, more violent, more, you know, more, more assertive, more physical. Um, and what's the cause of this? And everyone would say testosterone, you know, hormones, chromosomes, whatever. And I would say, okay, fine. That So that's what we all – that's what we believe. Now, let me ask you this question. If tomorrow morning you woke up and every single political position of power, from presidents to local dog catchers, was held by a woman, would you feel safer at night? And my students all say, no. And I said, well, wait a minute. You've just told me that men are more aggressive, more violent, more rapacious. Why would you feel? Why wouldn't you feel more uh, more safe? They said, "Well, no, no, that no. Think of think of Indira Gandhi and Margaret Thatcher and Hillary Clinton. Why the If a woman has her finger on the button, she's just as likely to use it. Maybe even more likely, given hormones and all of that. You know, with her period and whatever." And I would say, "Okay, so you you don't really believe men and women are different. You believe the position is more important than the gender of the person who holds it." And I believe that's what I that's what I came to call soft essentialism. We believe men and women are different until we see the fact that they're not.
0: That's really interesting. And so uh, you noticed that there's been this change, particularly in the last five to seven years. I mean, does this mean that how we are raising boys is beginning to change? The way we're conditioning them to act is different now?
1: Uh, I think we have a – this is a question that we are posing all through our educational system and in parenting literature is are we – have we changed what it means to be a boy? Have we changed how we've raised uh, boys to be boys? And I feel actually quite sanguine about this. I think that we have changed somewhat the way we raise boys. Um, and it's all to the good. It's also parallel to the way we've, ch- we've changed uh, the way we raise girls. We raise girls now to be strong and assertive and confident, to play sports, to dream big, to go for it. And, you know, and you don't have to look much further than the, the political mobilization of women over the past several years to, to notice that women ha- are are, are – You know, in the corporate world, in the professional world, in the political world, in the sports world, the biggest change in our high schools in in the past 25 years has been girls' sports. Um, And it, it, it is astonishing to me that we don't sort of see this and say, well, that's really changed things. You know, girls are far more powerful, more assertive, more confident. And that's what you hear from parents of girls. Uh, is I want to raise my girl to be strong and assertive and confident and to be ambitious. All of the things that we used to code as masculine. And nobody ever says we're turning our girls into men. Absolutely not. Of course we're not doing that. We're turning them into women. But what we're also doing at the same time, a little bit less, is we're also training boys to be more empathic, to to prepare themselves to be better fathers. And I can think of no place to better see this then the biggest change in young people's lives from when I was a, a high school kid, and I watched, my my son is now a senior in, in, at college, but I watched this all through his growing up, and uh, and the biggest change for young people today is cross-sex friendships. You know, uh, it, I, I used to, when I first started doing this work, I've been doing it for quite a while, I would walk into a, a, a classroom and I would say, how many of you have a good friend of the opposite sex? And I'd see like 10% hands. And now... I can walk into any classroom anywhere in the United States, including West Point, where I actually asked this question a couple of years ago, and I can say, is there anybody here who doesn't have a good friend of the opposite sex? And I almost never see a hand. It is the biggest change among young people. So let me ask you this, Jonathan. Who do you make friends with? Do you make friends with your your boss? You make friends with your subordinates? Typically, the word we use for friends is peers, our equals, young people boys and girls, are more experienced in day-to-day relational gender equality than any generation that has ever walked on the face of the earth. This cannot Mm. help but be good.
0: (laughs) And at the same time, I, it sounds like there are these incredible uh, strides in, in younger generations, but the, the news we continue to hear uh, is that men are still three times as likely to commit suicide than women. Uh, we're seeing you know, very high rates of mental illness or, or health problems among particularly middle class white men. We keep hearing this over and over again. So how does that fit into this conversation as well?
1: Ah, what we're learning, of course, is that the old models of masculinity um, are ill-suited for what men want and need to be doing in this era, and so, of course, it's the case that people are, you know, for, for that that if you if you hook your masculinity onto some of these out outmoded ideas, you're going to experience some significant problems. Um, the inability to connect with your children, your partner, your spouse, whatever. Also, the feeling that you're not fit, not succeeding in the in, in the in the workplace. The, not knowing how to deal with trauma, with pain, um, with with a, with with confusion. If you're supposed to be stoic and know all the right answers and never ask directions, even when you're lost. You know, f- happily, ways has put an end to that. But the, that very idea um, of masculinity has has now proved for many men to be painful, to be harmful. So I think that it's not it, it's not inconsistent at all. Um, and you're also witnessing the political mobilization of white masculine grievance because the world has changed toward a more egalitarian world. In um, the subtitle of my book, Angry White Men, was American Masculinity at the End of an Era and the end of the era that it was at the is at the end is an era of that assumed white male entitlement that idea that of course we are in charge you can do what you want but we are but clearly we're in charge we have the power and that is no longer that can no longer be taken for granted that can no longer be assumed and i think that's a um so a, yes i i i do think that many men are really are in trouble um and the more tightly we cling to those archaic ideas of masculinity, I think the more trouble we're going to be in.
0: So how is this kind of older generation making sense of this change in masculinity? You know, we, we hear this for, along the Rust Belt, for example, or places like that. Is, is it one that you think men are, are taking up and thinking that this is a positive change? Because I, I feel like there's a lot of pushback on this idea as well.
1: There is a lot of pushback against it, of course. Um, I think, as I said to you uh, uh, before, I think young people hold the, the, the future uh, on this and they are much more... Uh, and they're they're much more likely to uh, be comfortable with with gender equality than other than previous generations. So that's so that's part of why I'm I'm you know no one has ever called me a, a hardened pessimist as a result. I think uh, because I do have that faith in them. But yes, it is true that in in the Rust Belt, in uh, you know in in every neighborhood there are people who cling very tightly to older ideas and in uh, and, and a world for which they're not, well, you know they, they are not, those ideas are not well suited. And so I think that uh, I, I, and I think that that's what we're going to witness. We're witness we've been witnessing the politics of sort of you know, white male grievance. Uh, but I think that that politically, what we also witness is that men who are in, engaged in more egalitarian relationships at work, at home, Uh, more emotionally resonant relationships with their friends, more emotionally connecting with their children are happier. Now, I don't think that these answers, Jonathan, and this is important, these answers just don't come from a psychological, you know, transformation. They come, you know, if you look at the countries that are the happiest in the world, they also have a strong safety net So that, for example, men who believe, as men have always believed throughout American history, that what makes a man a man is that he is a provider and a protector. Those are the two words that men have used since the beginning, the founding of our country, provider and protector. And as the ability to be a provider— has become more and more unstable, more and more threatened. I think men have been buying guns to be better protectors. I think they see that as a way to compensate for the, for their inability to be providers. I think that those ideas uh, about being providers and, and being a pr- protector are the ideas that we have carried with us for centuries. Um, and they are now, and it what a relief it is when you look at countries that have strong safety nets, um, that have great greater gender equality than we do. What a relief it is to be able to share that burden.
0: It also makes me wonder, Michael, what what do we do with this this older and it might be now an outdated sense of masculinity because. Yes, perhaps some are slow to accept this new version. But at the same time, I don't think as a country or uh, in terms of community mental health, we want to sit by and watch people uh, suffer at the same time or have these high rates of suicide or or die at at younger ages. I mean, what do you think needs to happen on a more societal level?
1: well as I, exactly at a, at a more societal level we need to establish uh that we don't that we are um that we care about uh people as they age we care about people who have uh, who are unemployed we care about people who um who don't have uh, adequate health care um that this is you know we have we have t- we have turned our back on these men and then we complain that they're that they're yelling and screaming. Uh, it seems to me that we have t- done a, done them a terrible disservice. They are right to be angry because we 've ignored them and we 've abandoned them. but the way to not ignore them, the way to not abandon them is not to simply fulfill their you know is is not to simply take their perspective, but rather link it to the perspective of other groups that are also marginalized, that also don't feel connected, that also don't feel included, and make coalitions that are broad and class-based rather than, you know, um, my 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 experience with the angry white men, when I interviewed uh, white supremacists and skinheads and neo-Nazis um, several years ago, one of the things that, that I, I kept thinking to myself was, these These men are, are, are I'm sorry to use this metaphor now because you know because it's so pro, pro, the, the post office is so problematized, but I kept thinking like they were delivering their mail to the wrong address yes, of course they they have been downsized outsourced uh you know the, the, their future is more uncertain, but it wasn't LGBT people who did it it wasn't feminist women who did it it wasn't immigrants who did it, so it seemed to me that they were ri- angry, but they were dil- they were directing their anger at the wrong at the wrong people and they have a lot of help directing their anger to the wrong people because that's mostly what hate
0: radio does i also noticed you've been using um the the word white male grievance which i think is really important word here um do you think there's also this type of a change happening in latino populations in black populations across america specifically these questions of masculinity
1: I think so. Uh I, I think that there are there are lots of different groups and lots of people who have studied the these the questions of uh marginalized communities and how masculinity plays out. And one of the things that is particularly important there is is the is Questions, for example, among Latino men or uh, among African American men, is questions about fatherhood and connection to children. What we the stereotype is that uh, black men, uh, for example, uh, have, have have children with different women and that they abandon them; they're irresponsible. Not at all true. Turns out that that um, lots of lots of these men spend a lot of time with with children from earlier relationships. Um, they spend a lot of time as fathers. Uh, it is not nearly the kinds of stereotypes that we used to have but this idea of uh, that that um so so that's one route the other route of course is through work through the workplace we are working in in workplaces that are more diverse than any workplaces our grand i mean my grandfather would have no we have had no frame of reference for the workplaces that that his that my son is about to face Absolutely no frame of reference. It wouldn't have, it, it wouldn't have crossed his mind. My, fa- my grandfather, both my grandfathers worked in all-male work environments. Uh, For 40 years, they retired. They got a gold watch, a testimonial dinner, and moved to a a condo in Florida. And that was what they did. And they never had women colleagues, co-workers, bosses, supervisors, anything of the kind. They had very little diversity in their workplace. That world is gone. And if we are going to think that we can prepare young men for that world— we are ill-preparing them for the world that they're actually going to inhabit. And that's a source of real strain psychologically when they then enter that world and they're ill-prepared for it.
0: Well, Michael Kimmel, thank you so much for this conversation today. It's been, it's been really fascinating. Thank you.
1: Sure. My pleasure, Jonathan. Thank you.
0: Once again, that was Michael Kimmel, Emeritus Professor of Sociology and Gender Studies and the former director of the Center for the Study of Men and Masculinities, at Stony Brook University in New York. He's the author of Angry White Men and also Manhood in America, a Cultural History. Still to come, how do we learn to accept all forms of masculinity? And how have the traditional traits attributed to the male sex impact gay, trans, and bisexual men? We'll talk with a black, cisgender man about what masculinity means to him. That's after this short break. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from Michael Kimmel about how old stereotypical models of masculinity are gradually breaking down. Our next guest shares his personal experiences struggling with his identity, growing up a queer black male. And his story asks big cultural questions, like, why does society measure male attributes as strengths while being feminine is seen as a weakness? How do we unlearn sexism, patriarchy, and male dominance, which can be the source of so much pain? Dr. John Paul is a speaker, writer, and social justice educator who focuses on issues related to gender, race, and media. Well, Dr. John Paul, welcome to Life Examined. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really excited to be here. Well, we're discussing this this huge topic of masculinity in 2020, and I, I, I... I know this has been something you've been thinking about for a long time, and I wonder if you can Mm. take us into your life and and tell us when, when you began to start thinking about this yourself and why it's been so important to you.
2: Yeah. So I think for me, the conversation around masculinity actually started very very young i know some kids you know three four They're you know the conversation doesn't even come up for sp- specifically men um and specifically for black men and i know for myself being african american when i was probably about four or five i started getting the eyes that's what i've i've re- i've started to kind of deem it as right. um and the eye in relation to you know my father wasn't in the picture. Um, at all, pretty much. And so my brother, for whatever reason, never got the eye from any of my uncles or, you know, male peers in our in our family. Whereas for me, I always seemed to always have someone's eye on me. Mm. Um, my voice was always a little bit higher. Um, my mannerisms were very, very I was always often called soft or, you know, he's a little light. That was mm. kind of one of the things my uncle always referred to me as, As you know, I was I was quote unquote light. Right. Um And I never really understood what that meant until I probably got to be around eight or nine. Um, I started recognizing. So I come from and I've said this in my TED talk. I come from a long line of singers. My grandfather was a singer. My father was a singer. He used to do stuff for Prince. My uncle was a a background singer for Luther Vandross for a very long time. And so me being a singer, you know, I I started, you know, recognizing around eight or nine that I actually did have a voice. And I was drawn to women's music, you know, specifically, you know, Aretha Franklin, uh, you know, Whitney Houston was my favorite at the age of nine, Mm. because I could actually hit her notes. And I can remember coming, I mean, a, a story specifically that kind of was just like the the kind of the telltale that I was different and something that it was going to always be a problem. I was probably about eight or nine. I'm every woman had came on the radio. I was singing it. And I remember my uncle giving me a look and him basically telling me to knock it off. Mm. And it wasn't a knock it off as to like, you know, you know, you're singing too loud or, you know, what you're singing is a problem. It was just this look of like, you have, you're basically emulating a woman and I don't like it. Mm. And so Ever since then, you know, I've kind of always noted that that masculinity was going, you know, in my own mind, masculinity was going to be a problem when I got to high school. You know, I was constantly teased for how feminine I was. My family would make comments. My peers would make comments in church, and then it just it it, it's always been something that has followed me even down to my voice now. You know, the the whole, you know, oh ma'am, you know, or sir, I, I don't really know what to call you, and so there's this notion around. Me not quote unquote performing. I don't I don't add bass in my voice the way some folks individuals believe I'm supposed to. I don't emulate quote unquote masculinity. I don't perform in a way that others want me to. And so I think that that's something that has always constantly followed me. This notion of the performance element of masculinity and how I don't adhere to it. And then ultimately, what are the ramifications for me in relation to both my race and my sexual identity and my gender identity, not performing in the ways that society wants me to in relation to that concept?
0: Right. How did that all feel to you as, as a young kid trying to make sense of this and thinking about the I, which you call it, your uncle saying, hey, knock it off. You're, you're, not, mm-hmm. you're not acting like a man. What, what was that like for you?
2: It you know it's hard. I think it's very hard. I mean, there were moments where you know I even I even and as as I've gone to therapy and as I've worked with my therapist around. Not only just this, the relationship I have with my family and conversations and concepts connected to this, um, this idea of like even in high school, you know, begging my doctor to give me testosterone so mm. that way I could quote unquote become more masculine. Right. Um, you know, and, and and this idea of my doctor being like, What is wrong with you? Like, why would you want me? <laughs> why would you want testosterone? You know, you I don't see a problem. Like, what's what's your what what is it? And really learning that 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 this was something that was put on to me, not 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 necessarily Really something that I, I came to believe. And so I think with therapy, and I, I say therapy in the sense of not necessarily wanting to be cheeky, but really wanting to say like, I think as now as an adult at 35, there has been maybe kind of I would say, I think it was maybe I would say four or five years ago that I was in a, a seminar at my, my last place of work, where folks were talking about this concept of what it means to be trans. And a person who was gender nonconforming, gender non-binary, had got up and spoken about this notion of like how coming to terms with being gender nonconforming is much like when a person has to come to, to terms with being trans. And I think that that for me is kind of where my eye opening happened was that, you know, yes, I am gender nonconforming and I do recognize that. A lot of the feminine, the the quote unquote, emotional soft elements of who I am were things that I had to reckon with because again, these were things that I was taught, um, in relation to who i should be and how i should perform and how i needed to unlearn that but more i would say in this conversation around this the way society has taught the world to hate women Mm -hmm. and how the idea of when you show up as a woman or you show up in a feminine form um how ultimately that 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 shapes this notion of you being less of a person less of a man because you're not emulating what that performance measure means yeah
0: yeah of course and and i think You've you've written really eloquently about this. There's one line that really jumped out to me. You wrote the emotionally damaging masculinization of young men starts even before young men have a keen sense of self. Yep. Can you say more about that?
2: yeah you know so like i even think about this notion of like when i was maybe i would say probably 11 or 12 i had an you know i so in in my article and i've also spoken on several podcasts and other things about this concept this whole notion around man up and this this whole notion around um not necessarily needing to to be able to to really express you know i tweeted something earlier this week where i had said allow black Um, you know, black children, specifically black men to be soft. And this notion of how like when my best friend died at 14, I was the age of 14 when she passed away. My world shattered because she was the only person that I felt like truly knew me and understood me and accepted me wholly Mm. Um, and when she passed I felt so alone and so there were days where I would be crying or I would be in my own head and I got depressed and I was dealing with depression and it was very much this notion of men don't cry men men aren't sad you know you need to fix this you need to get over it and I think that that's really what is the problem here you know when we look at gun violence when we look at domestic violence when we look at issues of um, anxiety and depression that's not being that's not being followed. When we look at, you know, I I remember seeing a statistic a couple of years ago when I was putting a program together for, again, an old old position I was in, how men... Uh, commit suicide at a larger rate at a certain age, you know, when they're dealing with certain emotional issues. Mm. You know, they lose their partner or they lose their job or, you know, they financially start having problems. And I think this all stems from this idea of, like, at a very young age, men are not given the space. And I say cis men in the sense of, like, you know, terminology can be very tricky when we start talking about gender identity. But I think about myself being a cis male, me being a cis male not being able to have the space at the age of 10, 11, or 12 to process a lot of the emotional things that I was dealing with and then being told that I needed to just deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. Like... Not being given the space to say I'm hurting or, or this, this thing has really, really made me sad and I really want to process this out and not being given the space to do that. So what do I do? And I'm not saying this is what I did, but I'm saying in general, this is what a lot of cis men do. We turn to drugs, we turn to violence, we turn to gangs, we turn to, you know, promiscuous, you know, I- interactions with other people. There are all of these different elements that start to kind of hurt us. And I think that, that it starts at a very, very young age.
0: Yeah, you're turning, you're turning to heal the wound somewhere mm-hmm. else. And it doesn't always take you to where you think you may have ended up or where you want to go, I guess, right? Correct. Correct. Yeah. What are uh, some of the other traits that you think men are, are told to think about themselves that, that can be damaging? I mean, I, I know this, this notion of, of not being emotional is still a very important one. What else comes to mind?
2: Yeah, I think also to body image, I think, you know, so for myself, um, I think that that's something that I have have dealt with up and down, um, both in and out of the LGBTQ community, right? I think this notion of what it means to, to be beautiful, quote unquote, in our society, right? This notion of for me to be a cis male, how masculinity is presented in relation to how I'm supposed to look. I'm supposed to be thin. I'm supposed to have muscles. I'm supposed to, you know, I, I'm supposed to eat healthy. I'm supposed to be a fast runner. There are all of these expectations put on me as to what I'm supposed to look like for the consumption of other people. Right. Mm -hmm. This notion that my body, regardless of, of, of how we talk about. How I'm feeling emotionally, how my body is supposed to be at the uh, consumption of other people, and I think that you know, as much as we do it to women, we do it to we do it both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Men are also kind of treated in the same way, and 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 by no means am I saying that the the uh, quote unquote and the word I'm going to use is oppression. No means am I going to say that what we as men deal with is the same thing as women. That's obviously that's not a truth. But what I'm saying is, is in the way that we are commodified as a body, right? This notion that my body is supposed to be able for other people to ingest it for the way that they want to i think that that that, that's just a remnant of masculinity and toxic masculinity to an extent um this notion that i'm supposed to be injecting myself with steroids or that i'm supposed to live in the gym or that i'm supposed to quote quote unquote um present as the the masculine figure for Another queer person in the community. It's just little things like that. I also think about this notion too of how I'm supposed to feel about myself, right? How when I walk into a room that I'm supposed to be hyper masculine and that I'm supposed to have, you know, this 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 grit that I guess comes with being a black man. And and oftentimes I like to tell people like a lot of the perceptions and the expectations that are put onto black men are rooted in stereotypes and and racism. So I just I think that that's kind of been the biggest thing right outside of dealing with the emotional scars of growing up and being Treated poorly because i don 't you know emulate masculinity in the ways that the world wants me to, I get older and then have to deal with the society not treating me in a certain way because I also don 't emulate masculinity or perform masculinity in the ways that others would want me to
0: yeah you know it 's interesting we we heard from from another guest on this program who who made sure that uh, we also call it masculinities sometimes mm-hmm. and i mm-hmm. I think it 's important that you are Coming from um, uh, from a black family and perhaps right. a black notion of what men should be. I mean, is there something very specific in there too that you have thought about and that that you could say anything more about?
2: Yeah. I, yes. I think for me, I always tell people one of the things that we tend to remiss and that we oftentimes don't talk about is how black male bodies were treated from the sense of slavery. Right. Mm. So we have to go back to slavery in order to understand where hypermasculinity came from. Um, This notion of being able to take and deal with what was put onto a black male's body. And I think Jordan Peele, I want to I want to shout Jordan Peele out because in the film Get Out, I think to an extent. There's a part in Get Out where we talk about, like Jordan is talking about that, right? So I don't know if you've seen the film. I have. Sh- yeah. Okay. Yeah. So th- let's talk about the film specifically, the scene where all of these people start coming up and they're poking and prodding at, you know, the the black character as he's talking to all of these people at the soiree that the family is having. Right. This notion of he's athletic or he has good eyes or he's fast or all of these different things, right? A lot of those concepts and ideologies are connected back to the the ideas of, you know, how black people were treated as commodities in slavery. And so as we've moved on and as we've continued to kind of evolve as a people As much as we're saying we need to redefine masculinity or we need to redefine the way that we look at people, again, folks' mindsets are so rooted in what systematically has been kind of taught and thought about the Black body, specifically the Black male body, that we start to feed into that. Mm. And so now the expectation is set. And I think that that's the thing that I've constantly tried to push and try to challenge in my own work is really getting people to really step out of that and say what is your definition what is my definition of what it means to be a man what is you know the what should be the universal defi- definition? And I think that this idea of not giving folks the autonomy, specifically black men, the autonomy to say this is how I show up and this is who I want to be, and you have to respect that. I, I I genuinely think that that has a lot to do with the ways that black people, specifically black men, have been treated since you know being brought here against their will in the early 1700s.
0: Yeah, I mean it's a very powerful idea that um yeah that that. Black men would have been uh, judged based on how strong they were or how powerful they were, and that Mm -hmm. we have carried that cultural notion with us now hundreds of years forward. And it's just kind of become the way the culture works, which I I I can imagine is very troubling. Yeah, very much. Um. How do you think the media is, is factoring into this? You just referenced, I think, an exceptional film, which gets to some of these ideas. But when it comes to questions of, of the unemotional man or body issues, do you feel that it's moving in a positive direction? What do you see happening around you right now?
2: Yeah, well, I think you have to have people who are in the space, in the mind that they want to challenge it and they want to bring up these subjects. You know, I will say this very openly. I don't watch This Is Us um, because This Is Us. I'm not one of those people that like to sit down and watch shows that are going to make me emotional. I feel like my life is already emotional, (laughs) especially now. Um, So I have friends who go, do you watch This Is Us? And I'm going, no, but I follow it. And I think, you know, I I wrote an article for Shadow and Act a couple of months ago about this idea of how... Shows like This Is Us and uh, I think it's called A Million Little Things on ABC are are highlighting the issues of black mental health. Um, and I think that they also on This Is Us are getting into concepts around masculinity and what it means to be thought of as a black man. And so I think folks are trying. Um, I think it's going to take a lot of time and it's going to take a lot of work. But you also have to have people in these writers rooms. You have to have people who are writing scripts or wanting to do interviews that fully understand that the problem exists and, fig- and, and, and they have to want to work to figure out how do they change it or how do they rewrite the narrative. And so I like to give you know shout outs and kudos where I can because like I said I think shows and and movies or even you know films again get out us I think us is another great Jordan Peele film that really kind of deals with this notion of what does it mean to be a black man and what does it mean to protect your family and all of these different things um, there are a lot of layers and, and a lot of the stuff that he does but I, I definitely think that it is important for us to really you know I always like to tell people you know please be mindful to not always look to media as being the answer mm. I think we have to start looking at a lot of, you know, the writing, you know, Audrey Lord wrote a lot about it. Uh, James Baldwin wrote a lot about it. Like these are individuals who've written a lot about these ideas. And we have to make sure that we're getting information that's not coming just from media about topics related to this.
0: Yeah, there there's always this ongoing conversation and about nature and nurture that mm-hmm. men are a certain way and women are a certain way, no matter what we do. Do you do you buy any of that? or Or do you feel that there's just too much conditioning that happens to us as we're young that shapes who we become.
2: Yeah, I mean, so th- th- that's the interesting thing. I mean, I'm not going to sit here because again, I'm not a scientist. You know, I ultimately went to school to study education and that's what I did. What I will say is very interesting is I always step back and I look at me and my brother because me and my brother were raised by my mother. Mm. And, you know, she, again, my mother was a single parent um, and me and my brother, you know, <laughs> it's funny because my brother is only about a year and a half younger than me. And my husband comments, often how different me and him you know are he's (laughs) like you and your brother are so different and you know he loves us both you know my 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 husband gets along with both of us but It's just interesting to me because when we get to that conversation about nature versus nurture, right, I've had a lot of people say that, well, your mother did this and that's the reason why you came out queer. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, "Mm, you know, I don't know, because I think my mom raised me and my brother the same, right? Like my mom was very, very equitable in how she raised me and my brother. I just think we are all different people and we all have different experiences and those experiences shape who we become. Um, I have always known that I was queer. I have always, you know, from a very young age, I, I actually just tweeted this out a couple of days ago. I said, you know, at the age of I think it was like eight or nine when I started recognizing, oh, wow, um, that gentleman is actually interesting. And, I, I you know, you, you don't want to say cute because you don't know what that means. Hmm. But interesting was the word that I, I constantly kept thinking about at the age of eight or nine. And then I watched Hook and I was like, why does Rufio make my heart patter? Like, I don't understand what that's about. Um, And so I think about that a lot. Right. Like those experiences and talking through those experiences experiences really shaped a lot of the way that I see the world and how I move throughout the world. And so, you know, nature versus nurture, I think we all have been shaped by nature in one shape, one, you know, one way or another. I think nurture too. My mom nurtured me in a different way because she knew I was different. My mom nurtured my brother in a different way because he was different from me. So I think that that's really one of the conversations that I don't know if we'll ever be able to kind of put a kibosh on Mm. because again, every experience is so different.
0: Right. Well, as we look as we look to the future here, are are you are you optimistic that that the conversations we have around gender will be less binary? That the notion of masculinity is one that will be uh, that will continue to evolve in a way that can feel healthy to culture. What do you think?
2: Yeah, um, you know, so as as somebody who teaches, I, I currently teach a master's course, and it's interesting because we've had conversations about what you know specifically, even now in COVID, what does the classroom look like? And one of my students had made a comment that you know, doing her student teaching, she said students for some reason now students have a very sure, like they're very sure of themselves in in a way that like Gen X and even millennials aren't, right? Like the new generation of of, mm. of youth. 15, 16, 17-year-old youth, they just know themselves so well. And I I don't know if media, I don't know if it's social media, I don't know what it is specifically that's, that's fueling that. But what I am is I'm very hopeful because I do feel like the generations coming up behind me are very sure of themselves and are very sure to let you know who they are, um, specifically about their gender norms, you know, or not gender norms, but their their gender identity and how they want to be identified. Um, but I, I definitely also think, too, that we live in a generation or we live in a space now and a time now where folks are allowing each other to celebrate themselves in different ways and they're allowing each other space to understand, you know, one another better. And I, 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 I'm actually appreciative that, you know, in the five years, six years that I've been working to create my platform, that I've had a lot of people come to me and say, how can I do this better? Or how can I understand this concept better? Or how can I make space for the young men that I work with to better understand themselves in a way that I wasn't given the autonomy to do? So I think that, yes, I, I genuinely am a believer that we are moving towards a very interesting, and I say interesting in a good way, in a very interesting space. And I do believe that a lot of individuals will be given the space to, be able to fully understand and, and be themselves in a way that I don't think I w- was given as a child.
0: Do you think that that maybe it's it's the younger generation that will in some ways educate the older generations the older norms of what being a man is?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I, I really think for me, it's they've been able to pick out the things that they like. And they've been able to pick out the things that they don't. And I think that they are working to say, we need to end the stuff that doesn't work. Mm. And I think that that's the thing that I'm celebrating in all of this, in these conversations is that, we have youth and we have i would say even you know millennials who are going into workplaces and that are saying okay well why don't we have a clause for gender nonconforming people why don't we have you know why this you know the male female checkboxes are problematic like i appreciate that we have so many more people being vocal about the things that need to change around masculinity specifically and about patriarchy i think when we really get down to the nitty-gritty of this conversation a lot of it is rooted in patriarchy and misogyny and the ways that we need to remove those out of the larger conversations. And I think that there are people right now, even in this moment of where we are, that are doing this to to, to, to remove it or to eradicate it. And I, I'm, I'm very, very excited to see where, where, where these conversations go.
0: Yeah, it makes me think of another line that you've written, which is, we have to acknowledge that, uh, that being viewed in society as masculine is reputed as a gift, while being viewed as feminine is a curse.
2: Mm-hmm. That line for me will always be the thing that really just kind of sticks to me. And I think that's the thing we have to really get away from is really we we have to interrogate. I think a lot of it is, is that I think we are so afraid to interrogate ourselves and the way that we see the world and the ways that we've the ways that we've been taught to see ourselves and I think when we talk about interrogating what it means you know celebrating masculinity as this amazing thing and then celebrating femininity as this thing that we should all get away from we have to ask ourselves why I remember I even I don't know where I was but I remember mentioning this I said when you know if, if you are and I'm not saying this to be um Problematic, But I think about the Bible a lot. I grew up in a very religious household. Um, and we often talked about the Bible. And I think a lot about the story of Adam and Eve, even now. And I always think about what is the rhetoric around Eve? right what is the rhetoric right. around how we got to this place as imperfect people everyone blames Eve and so I said even at the inception or at the you know even at the beginning of of, of time mm. <laughs> misogyny lived right mm. this idea that a woman is the reason why we're in the predicament that we're in and how we never held you know Adam to this this level of saying well you know you could have just said no you don't have to eat the apple you know so like <laughs> <laughs> right? right so I think that this 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 notion of that, you know, men and masculinity get too much credit or or get or don't get the space to be, you know, held to the same standard that women or femininity is and and why we have such a problem with femininity. I think this idea that, you know, if we allow ourselves to actually feel the idea that if we allow ourselves to actually be human, that how how much work goes into that and how much um how much we have to reckon with. Right. How much how much we do know or don't know because we have not had the chance to 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 reckon with that and so i think that that's the challenge i think for me at 35 being as effeminate as i am i look at it now as a blessing because i've done so much work to love myself and to understand my own emotions and i think that if if people can do that or folks can get to that place they'll see how much more greater the world is
0: well, Dr. John Paul, thank you for for looking at this issue with us on KCRW and for your stories and for your insight. We, we really appreciate the time.
2: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for thinking of me.
0: Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.